You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2002 remake classic, The Grudge. That's a pretty good Toshio slash cat sound, Wes. Did you practice that before the show? No, but I've always been good at cat sounds. There was a funny story that I think about sometimes as a youth where I felt it very fun to trick my family members into thinking that the cats in the house were meowing and they would get annoyed at the cats and my childlike brain was like they'll never know it's me mischievous Wes not a cat at all (laughs) I knew some of that could make a very realistic dripping water sound and it was fucking annoying because it was so realistic. I, you'd forget that you're sitting there with a the guy from Police Academy and you would go and investigate this dripping noise. <laughs> yeah, happened numerous times. And I didn't even live with this person. I couldn't imagine his poor family. <laughs> there was uh, there's one time where my cousin Tyler was getting really frustrated. Buster, Buster was the cat. Buster, stop it. Buster, stop it. And it was just me at the bottom of the stairs meowing. I thought I was very clever. Lids, I want to lay some facts and figures on you, if you would indulge me. Lay facts and figures away, Wes. (laughs) Today, we are talking, like I just said, we're talking about the Grudge remake. And previously, dear listeners, we have been going through the two pillars of the Asian horror explosion that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. The Ring and the Grudge. Uh, Ring and Zhuan. There has been threats of us doing these films all the way back from the earliest episodes of the show. And I know this because my brother is going through, he's binging the entire thing because we had a conversation over Easter or whatever. And I feel bad, Caleb, hi, you've made it. You've made it to the 200s. Thanks, bro. Uh, Very sweet. Didn't have to do this. But he says, oh, I'm episode eight. I'm on episode 14. This, that, and the other thing. And I don't remember what those fucking episodes are. I don't remember what we said. I don't remember what we did. I was a different man. I was in my 20s. Yeah. So I go back and listen all the way back. And this was just the one that I remembered. Episode 14, I said... I would really like to do the ring or the grudge someday. Wow. Wow. Well, congratulations, Wes, on your glorious day. Haru hooray. <laughs> I I think it goes back to what I was saying, uh, I think in episode 200 or so, where I was scared to bring it up because I don't know why you, you were you were intimidating. I tried to explain uh, to my 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 brother because he was talking about some of the awkwardness between us in the early episodes and I was telling him we didn't fucking know each other all that well I said I, I, I think I met Lydia two times before we started doing this show and I'd been to your house once so I I was just 
you, you, the nervousness you're talking about is not because I don't know how to talk in a microphone. It's because I'm sitting in a room with a, a woman I don't know very well. Yeah. And like other extenuating circumstances, one of us, if not both of us, might have been tipsy or hungover at the time. Or it was super late at night and one of us would be tired. And then we flip flop to the early mornings where another one of us would be very tired. And just always something, if not like a cat making scraping cat poo sounds that would interrupt our flow, you know, let alone just, yeah, we met over this podcast 100%, really got to know each other over mm -hmm. this podcast for sure. Aside from the occasional going out for a drink, having a meeting or just chilling, hanging out, going to like the odd movies that we've mm -hmm. gone to live and stuff like that. But that didn't happen in those first formative episodes at all, of course. Yeah. Like I think that we had maybe gone out for a beer like twice yeah. and those are good conversations. And so, but anyways, uh, fuck all that lids because we're here to talk about the grudge. We're here to talk about one of the, the, like I said, two pillars of the Asian horror boom that a lot of people associate. Where were you in 2004? I've told the grudge story so many times. I'll, I'll do a truncated version after you, but it's 2004 lids. The grudge is here. Where are you at? 2004, I was working for an engineering firm and I had no money to attend the theater. So I never went out to the theater. I also had a horrible relationship with someone who did not like going to the theater and I didn't want to really be around very often. So I didn't really go anywhere, or have any fun. The only horror movies I really watched were with my mother. And this is no exception. This is another film that I had rented. And I believe I rented it on VHS. And that was a conversation wow. Chris and I were trying to have. Like, when was that watershed moment when things stopped going to, say, Blockbuster or a mom and pop video rental stores? For us, it was Video Fever in Calendar Bay, Ontario. And would this have been available on VHS was one of the questions. But yeah, I, we rented it, enjoyed the hell out of it. I had been turned on to this when it was in theaters, though by my boss at the time at the engineering firm who him and his wife his wife was a bigger horror movie fan and he liked horror you know he used to i played diablo with the guy here and there because we had diablo on the network when it would get quiet near winter time at this engineering firm and so he like had a proclivity for horror he watched this and a grown-ass man who is no stranger to horror came into work and without saying hello to me, I don't think that morning, he said, have you seen The Grudge? And I said, no, no, I had no plans, no money, you know, whatever. And he's like, you need to go see it. And I'm like, file this away. I will see it eventually. He's like, it scared me. I almost left the theater. I was trying to not show how terrified I was because my wife was having a fine time. But he was like, his hand, he kept finding his hands going up towards his face with all of these scares and the idea of it and the anticipation of it from the minute he saw Toshio, he's like, I lost all decorum. I just was terrified for the rest of the film. I spent the whole film shaking like a child. And he's like, I, wow. I felt like I had no control over that. And he's not an easy to scare guy, but this film really did it to him. And I've come to find he's not alone. A lot of people very scared of this. I watched it four times, I think. When I mm -hmm. when I first rented it, but then I haven't seen it again since. This was 
Uh, I was in my first year of college, and the reason why I remember that so vividly, dear listeners, if you must know, I took radio when I was in school. And in those days, I don't know what it's like there now, but in those days, it was expected that within the second week of school, you were on the radio because, you know, why else are you here? My first show in one of my uh, first breaks, I talked about going to see The Grudge. And I remember saying that on the radio that it was very scary and I talked about the, the I couldn't remember Toshio's name in those days, so I was just, I kept calling him Catboy. Catboy was the scariest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I'm not saying that I'm a coward, but I am saying that, you know, Sprinkles slept in the garage. I don't have a cat named Sprinkles, but I thought it was funny to say that I did. Uh, but I couldn't get over, I think that I we went to go see it. I went with my girlfriend at the time. I think we went to go see it just because I was like, I'm, I, I'm in radio. I need to be talking about things that are happening right now. So I need to see movies when they come out and this, that, and the other thing. And I, I, I could not believe, I had never seen a horror movie like that. I'd never seen uh, certainly a ghost movie like that. I was used to, you know, winding banisters and high vaulted ceilings and people clutching their pearls. The The turn of the screw style, style of um, ghost stories is what I was the most familiar with in those days. I had never seen uh, a ghost that operated like this. And the thing that happened to me that has never happened before and has never happened since was the hairs on my head stood up every single fucking time one of those bastards appeared every single time and i i felt like oh my god i'm like fred flintstone i'm fucking shaggy and scooby-doo i'm my hair is sticking up on end it was so fucking scary and it sat with me for a long time and after that theater going experience, I never watched the movie probably for almost 10 years. And I, and I got up the, it was a, it was forboten. I did not want to go see this movie. I didn't want to watch it again. It was too scary. And I, okay, I'll watch it again. And then completely alleviated of all of it. And even watching the film this morning for the show, I kept thinking to myself, I can't believe how scared I was I was of this movie. I've gotten a lot older, I've seen this movie a few times, and horror movies just don't affect me anymore, but uh, there was one moment that got me, fucking startled me, even though I knew it was coming. Uh, that scene on the bus where Kayako's face is in the reflection. And I remember watching that scene, I was like, I seem to remember thinking about this scene in the theater and being relaxed because I was oh, they're in a crowded bus and it's the daytime. And then Kayako shows up and I was so fucking startled. And I was like, ooh, and they broke the rules, which again, as we talked about in Juan, this film consistently breaks rules. I really enjoy that too. And I like doing what you were doing is watching this. Cause like when I said, I haven't seen it since I, that's a lie. I saw it a couple days ago for the show. Um, now, I didn't see it in theater, of course. And it's one of the very few films that I feel poorly that I did not get to see in theater. I wish I could have experienced those sorts of 
frights because it is a different atmosphere. It's darker. It's weirder. You already feel kind of weird. I feel kind of weird being in theater to begin with. I don't like the the day for night kind of thing where you go in during the day and it like is pitch black in the theater. And then when you get out, it's like creepy if it's not nighttime. I, d I don't like that feeling. But anyway, I do like going to a matinee, but I don't like leaving the theater from pitch dark into daytime. It fucking fucks with me every time. But yeah, the the booming sound, the jump scares being 40 feet tall, you know, that is something that I, I wish I could have experienced because to hear tell of so many people being so scared, especially of the darling Yoshio. And I think that he has a much uh, more eerie presentation in this film, which we'll get to. But I really wish I would have experienced that. Although I did sit there doing the same thing as you, sort of like marveling at how scary it had been on the first viewing when you don't know what to expect, so to speak. Forgetting a little bit of it, but not forgetting every single scene. And it could be either that it was, it had made such an impression on me, like it did on most people, or it's the same reason that I haven't watched it since, is that convenience factor. The clips are there. In every documentary about horror film, we see a clip of The Grudge. In any documentary about modern horror filmmaking or remakes of Asian great horror films, we see clips of The Grudge. You want to talk about things that scared people, you will see a clip of The Grudge. If you want to, you can just type in Grudge clips probably on YouTube and get a whole bunch of them. You see them everywhere. They're used everywhere. The movie itself is readily available here and there. It's been off and on different streamers, and we had watched it on Prime for free. So it's like just kind of always there. So... I don't know if it's 100% that it's made such an impression on me where I remembered every single scene, even though I hadn't watched this movie since 2004 or five. It is such a part of our cultural zeitgeist that the movie has embedded itself in my psyche and, and many others. I'm sure there's people that haven't seen The Grudge that basically have seen The Grudge because of that exact reason. The genesis of this remake, dear listeners, was off of the heels of the success of the Ring remake, Hollywood did what Hollywood does. They looked to Japan and said, what else you got? What they had was Takashi Shimizu, who had done Zhuan, and in a rare, unprecedented move, hired him to remake his own film based off of a script that had been adapted off of his original movie. So he got another bite at the apple. He had said the reason why he was interested in doing the project was that it allowed him to smooth out the rough edges, fix some of the errors that he perceived in the storytelling, and then adapt it to a Western audience. I remembered this film a lot differently than I thought I did. And I'm going to explain what that means. So if you were to ask me, what is the what what was the primary difference between the English adaptation versus the original Japanese adaptation? One of the things that I would have said incorrectly was that the grudge is a lot more linear storytelling than the Japanese version. Now, in a sense, it's less confusing because you are dealing with fewer characters. We'll talk about that later. But it's not 
<laughs> more linear whatsoever. No. It is constantly jumping back, jumping forward. The timeline is more clear. We are dealing with three years from the initial incident. We are also then dealing with this, the primary in incident with uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. We're following her and the family that she has come to care on. All of those characters, and that is uh, taking place within the span of like a week, it seems. But it is constantly fucking with your perception of time. But there are some additions, Lids. Uh, but before that, what is this movie even about? Anyways, I want to know. This movie is about how Ted Raimi is your savior and lord and perhaps maybe the best actor that has ever graced the silver screen. I believe that he is not in enough movies. He should be in every movie and that we should just have a Ted Raimi appreciation fest uh, outside of the appreciation fest that I am having right now at this moment in time because I forgot what a driving force he was in this film. I love him. I love him so much. And I am of sound mind. Yes, I am. I love Ted Raimi. This is where we include Ted Raimi cutting into the episode with like, I'm Ted Raimi and I approve this message. Yeah, he would. He would. Um, no, it's really not about Ted Raimi, but it is similar to other things. You need to do your, your research. You need to have communication. You need to not trust those beyond you and trust your your senses and your feelings when you walk into a work situation that is unsafe and unsound and there's missing people involved you need to alert authorities immediately i i still will never get over the i'm a caregiver i walk into this situation and try and handle it myself by cleaning up the elderly and cleaning up the area and even though there's hints that there's something deeper and more wrong going on in this house and I feel unsettled and I meet a bloodied, beaten, battered, nearly mute little boy, <laughs> there's something desperately wrong in this building. It wouldn't take me more than 20 minutes to have called the police in either movie, whether you're looking at Juwan or The Grudge, 20 minutes max, I would be calling the cops over and above my Ted Raimi. When you see Ghost House... That, dear listeners, if you're not aware, is the production company. Sam Raimi and Rob Tapper, they, of course, worked on Evil Dead, and they were responsible for a bunch of stuff. Uh, they did this, and, you know, Boogeyman and shit like that. You're going to see either, uh, like, Lucy Lawless in something. You're going to see one of the Raimi, bro uh, Raimi brothers in, in something uh, when, when Ghost House does things. You know what's fucked up is... It, it didn't occur to me how strange it was that not only did she find a beaten little boy... And didn't call the police immediately. He was taped in a fucking closet. I know. It, it was like packing tape. It looked like it had been there a while. And you would ask yourself, wh why why did that happen per se? Because uh, they don't get into the taping of things in this film whatsoever. That primarily is a storyline that is dropped from the original involving the schoolgirls and the police detective. The, the taping seems to be a way to keep the spirits out or to keep them in, however you want to look at it. There is probably the most egregious addition to this. There's two big additions in this English <laughs> version. One is Bill Pullman as Peter, the object of Kayako's affection. I think that it's interesting that they change Kayako to from this somewhat demure housewife that 
maybe was having an affair, maybe wasn't. It seemed, in my humble opinion, on the original film that it was all in her husband's head. Her husband was deranged and jealous and killed his wife and family off of a notion as opposed to any natural facts. Yeah, in the original, I absolutely agree that Kayako's affection for the other man was akin to walking past other people's uh, open windows on Christmas dinner night and you look into a window and you see, you know, maybe someone who's very well off with their 15 people seated for dinner and you go, wow, that's nice. I think that was sort of the the extent of her uh, affection for this man was like, wouldn't it be nice to have a loving husband who cared about me and that I actually loved? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? I think that was the extent of it. Not like this, because this is a um, total obsession with this other man. Mm-hmm. It's a hand that rocks the cradle type situation. And I had remembered it differently. I had remembered it as, oh, the affair in this film is explicit. And they, she is having an ongoing affair with her professor. Uh, no, that's not true. She has a, a, an ongoing obsession over her former professor. Who barely remembers her. Exactly. Who Who starts off the film with a suicide which is a dramatic way to start it and this is something else that i'd also noticed about this film that i had noticed previously and what i've always thought when you compare the ring to the grudge and i won't do that too often but in this case i think it's instructive is that the grudge seems like the hardcore version doesn't it doesn't it just seem a little bit more violent a little sleazier a little darker a little bit more extreme even though this is still just a pg-13 film but like it just in terms of like the body count jaw rippings all the blood the suicide the dark subject matter it just seems so much more serious and when you take it down to its nuts and bolts of how are these families um operating in the space that they're given there's not one together home there's not one stable job it seems there's not one person who seems to be adequately cared for, sheltered, and secure in their position, whether they be an exchange student who can't speak Japanese very well and is in a whole other place. Karen and her boyfriend Doug seem to have the most stable relationship out of all of these people, yet they are you know they they might be struggling for housing for all we know because they're living on his student salary and what she makes um, as a caregiver for what call-in jobs she seems to be able to get because she doesn't seem to be gainfully employed by any way shape or form can hardly speak japanese and that's not the only person who feels out of sorts in this country that they do not call home there's other american families to deal with that don't seem to be all together there's no real true nuclear family that's operating properly whatsoever they wouldn't have the wherewithal to have a fucking funeral properly in this film, unlike in The Ring, where there are still some stable family traditional culture to rely on, and there are there's gainful employment, moms that have jobs and stuff like that, where it seems in this, everything's teetering on an edge from the moment you meet Bill Pullman, literally teetering on an edge. And I think that that suicide scene at the beginning really sets up your memory of the relationship between Kayako and Peter in that you would part of us wants to think in our soap opera digest mind that he must have killed himself because he's guilty of adultery when no it's the grudge pure and simple the 
aspect of this film that they've added, the secondary aspect that they added, is Doug. And I love that you struggled to learn his name. The only reason why I know his name was because... Is there a, a reverse sexy lamp test for, for men? Like, what the fuck is this character? I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, oh, I see, you gotta have... I guess she needs a boyfriend to explain why she would become, because it seems like if uh, maybe I'm dead wrong here, it seems like he came here for school because he's always wanted to live in Japan. And this seems to be his career path. She seems to also be in school, but it's not clear what she's taking. I assumed that her nursing job was some kind of co-op so maybe she's in school for long-term care or something like that i don't fucking know but it it seems as though she's just tagging along but other than that they have a few scenes together where they're rolling around and they're a happy couple they're living in a an apartment that seems way too big for japan based off of what i've seen of people's living situations in in the, their japanese mini apartments and shit but but all of that to be said, he just there. There's a period, there's a period, I shit you not, listeners. Where there is, I'm gonna conservatively say about forty minutes of this fucking movie, in which you ain't gonna see hide nor hair of Doug, and then she is just going to tap on the glass of some restaurant that he's working at, and he is going to say. What are you doing here? <laughs> like, and 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 before that, I'm like, what the fuck? And then and then it it proceeds to just be like he's in danger in the third act for reasons unknown. Because even in 2004 in Japan, Sarah Michelle Geller doesn't have a fucking cell phone, so it's just everyone's just constantly leaving messages on people's phones. And at like home phones, and I was like, it's so weird to look at that, and and just like, why aren't people available? Their cell phones exist. Doug has a cell phone. Of course, Susan has a cell phone, which we'll get to when we talk about Susan, because that is again my favorite thing to talk about with this whole mm-hmm. movie, and the, my favorite thing to watch with this whole movie. But it is so weird, mm-hmm. and I think that you can use the same test. Let's stick a lampshade on Doug. Does he serve the same purpose? Pretty much, more or less. <laughs> yeah, it's he. I I get it, but it's interesting to see that from uh, the perception of a Western audience. I don't know if this was a note. I don't know if uh, Shimizu thought this is what the story lacked in his original idea, but got to have a boyfriend. She's got to be in a relationship for what, for why? It doesn't, it doesn't, she's in danger. It doesn't, she doesn't need to worry about Doug, just this blank slate nothing of a character. It it doesn't ruin anything for me, but it is distracting. And it does make you think all of the Doug stuff that they just kept interjecting into the film, periodically, mind you, is is just a lot of wasted time that they could be using to do I don't know what, but something a little bit more interesting, I think personally. Now when this film comes out and Shimizu is on deck as director. Not only does he come back 
to want to do another pass, but he brings back all of the original actors. And so uh, that played uh, Kayako, her husband, Toshio, they're all back. And better than that, it's interesting to see Toshio aged up a little bit, obviously because it's been a couple of years. And so Toshio is not as squeaky and, and high-pitched as it was uh, back in the day. But um, it's, uh, it, it, it just brought this air of legitimacy, I found, to the whole story. And I loved how so much of it was filmed in Tokyo. And to, to give the sense of foreigners in a foreign land who don't really understand the culture. There's a couple of things where, you know, the shoes, like taking off the shoes. I always forget that Americans are freaks and they don't take their shoes off when they come into the house. But um, and, and then, of course, like the stop at the graveyard where they're just like people praying. And the, the fact that Sarah Michelle Geller needs to explain to Doug what they're doing. I'm like, they're at a, it's a graveyard. <laughs> like what is this mis- like what is this mysterious what are they doing he's the one here studying strange- like he should know <laughs> I was like what What are these strange concrete pillars with writing all over them what What could it mean I was like it's a graveyard Douglas I- <laughs> it's so funny but again that's for the audience um, I- I'm kidding this movie pretty hard it's just uh, I just noticed these things now watching it in now as a 39 year old man as opposed to when I saw this initially um, the story starts off mostly the same aside from Bill Pullman's suicide we're basically back in the same situation Yoko is here now she is the primary caregiver we don't see originally what happens to Yoko in the original film I don't believe until maybe later but when she comes in and and goes missing this time, Sarah Michelle Gellar is called in. Now, one of the reasons why that they do that is because it's an English-speaking household, because this is a Western family that is staying in here. Do you want to know what I thought was the most interesting thing? And tell me if you noticed this. The mother. Did you notice the stark difference between the mother walking into this house for the first time and then what it seems to me like they're implying that the house made her condition far worse than it actually was. I believe it did. And in Juan, you don't really get as much of a sense of that at all, uh, except that, you know, of course, the the things that surround Yoko's disappearance definitely made her condition worse and far more confusing for her, whether she was suffering dementia or not. But, yeah, she was n- nearly 100 percent bedridden and basically comatose um mm-hmm. there's another word for that not comatose but uh catatonic she's basically catatonic comparing to the time that she walked into the house under her own volition and looked well kept and everything and it wasn't 100 percent her family caregivers she was yes locomoting under her own volition and had probably dressed herself that day we're just guessing because she looked that put together and alert where yeah it definitely seems there's a much more pronounced decline in her situation living in this house for sure and i also think it's the motivation of the actress as well because she basically went from twin peaks and having her daughter and taken away and becoming catatonic on her couch chain smoking cigarettes to this grace zabriskie is the actress's name and she does a fantastic fantastic job of 
doing basically what she had done at the end of Twin Peaks, being a catatonic out of her mind uh, individual. But it's just as heart-wrenching. We end up at the same place with her, even though we come in through that threshold in a little bit of a different place. Quite a bit of a different place, because you're right. I do agree with you that she does seem to be so much more there. And they don't give a sense. And that's the other thing that you had pointed out they're missing here that makes it a little more detached, I think, storyline-wise, a little more um, jumping around and and hard to keep track of. They don't have those title cards that sort of separate the time frame for us, let alone whose point of view we're exploring at the moment. We don't really explore specific points of view because we are sticking, for the most part, with Karen under Sarah Michelle Gellar's. Wow, what a way to phrase that. Under... <laughs> her character under the actor's tutelage we're mostly staying with <laughs> we're mostly staying with karen under sarah michelle geller of course so we don't really jump around that way but jumping around in time we don't have those title cards to help us out so we don't really get a sense of how long they've lived in this house it looks kind of like a week mm -hmm. particularly some of the dialogue where uh jennifer says that uh you know things are still packed up or we we're we're still looking for stuff did you know that i have a family member who married a japanese man who went and lived in japan and uh i don't know if she's still there now uh but her name was actually jenny or jennifer i think and and uh she used to have the i remember her talking to my grandparents and saying that she was having that type of um, difficult transition into the culture because I think they called her, she was quite blonde. Uh, I think they called her like yellowhead or something like that, like whatever the Japanese lingo was for that. Um, but she was, she was finding it like quite the culture shock when she lived there. And I couldn't help but think of the same thing when I saw her in the grocery store and she doesn't, she's just overwhelmed by all of the packaging and she doesn't read the language and stuff like that. She's there for her husband's job. But I agree with you. I think it's been like 48 hours. <laughs> I think I, I don't think that they've they've been there that long. I think that maybe it, it obviously it took some time to close the house. I liked that they made it very crystal clear that the murders in this house occurred three years ago. Nobody has lived there since. They have a realtor that shows up and has a scare of his own, again, further implying that everybody who enters the house has these experiences. We don't see the realtor die, but we certainly see other characters uh, who enter the house die. And I, I, I think that uh, they're very clear in that aspect. So maybe what I was responding to back when I saw this initially was the fact that there was these little hints that made things a little bit more clear with the exception of the title cards like you had said but particularly since when we initially go back in time the only pillar of continuity that we have is the mother if not for that character we were not introduced to anybody else i really do like that they play with us yet again with having that photo of a family in toshio in the house and us kind of knowing that there's no son in this family it's just uh, husband and wife 
his mother and that's it that's in the house and we know that and she's meeting up with this young boy who is so much more unsettling and i think that it's partially because he doesn't have sort of a kabuki sense of being a ghost boy which would translate so much better to a japanese audience he's literally just a beaten boy in this with far more blood mm -hmm. and scrapes and cuts and bandages there is a a palette in this film that i find very interesting it's it's fun to watch what the same director and some of the same actors can do when they just have more money like it, it really comes down to that it's things just look sharper they look slicker they just the budget is very clear while you're watching it's even the opening sequence that blood red opening with the cgi and it, the the kanji that flips to the grudge i was like oh man like what a dramatic like glossy way to start this movie and it's very pleasing to look at uh i i i do agree though that um toshio comes off as a lot less innocent and more sinister he is it's not a question of this poor boy attached to this grudge it is the sense of this uh yet a further extension of this extremely malevolent entity that exists within the house uh, and you could look at him as the lure of an angler fish just letting you know that those teeth are about to close around you mm-hmm mm -hmm. We seem to get a lot less more involvement from the father as far as the ghost, the, the quad ghost that is the cat, Toshio Kayako. Mm -hmm. And I forget the guy's name. It's um, Takeo? 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 It's a T name. Fuck, I can't yeah. remember. And Takeo, who we see the absolute least. We really hardly ever see his face, too, at that in this particular one where we saw a lot more of him in the original the interesting thing about Susan, the sister, is she doesn't come over for dinner and encounter the husband like menacing and frothing and being clearly possessed uh, by this entity. She's part of the initial let's check out the house. She comes in with them and the realtor and the next indication that she knows something is wrong is her just leaving a message on their phone wondering where they might be because she hasn't spoken to them yet which is uh is interesting and again helps establish that they haven't been there that long although i am curious why is she also in japan it's like this entire family just moved to japan mom sister brother wife the way i'm seeing this is that she lived there first she's a successful businesswoman of some Particular, I don't know what job she does, but she seems to be very settled in there and fine. And he must have found a job maybe through her and come over to have the family together again. Because there's maybe not too many years left with their mother, especially with some faculties as her dementia progresses. Maybe they wanted to be together at mm. that point. But I was just assuming that the Susan sister had been there quite some time and was quite established in Japan already. That's what I had guessed. That's a pretty good guess, actually. And as you were describing it, I was just sitting here like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. This sequence that happens, Susan's uh, death, 
Let me ask you this, because I, I was, wasn't was sure and I didn't go back and check. Is Kayako as prominent at the beginning in the original Juan as she is in this? Like, do we see her coming up the stairs or is that something that they added to this movie? Do you remember? It's hard to tell because the timeline is so much different. So you could say, yeah, Kayako is way more prominent in the other one because we see her moving around and alive and stuff way more. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't believe so. I don't I don't believe so. I think that we have about the same amount of Kayako as a ghost Kayako on screen in either film. Yeah. I really do. Um, it feels like we have less Toshio, but we are also missing a few scenes of Kayako. So perhaps we have a little less of her in, in this one it's, because we don't have her hovering yeah. over people as much. We have more of her face but less mm -hmm. of her shadowy body. Unlike this scene, of course, where we get about the same amount to the point that I would almost think that they just took the surveillance footage from the original film and used it again in this film because <laughs> it is so, so, so similar and about the same duration. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I really did like this and I was worried that they would leave out some of those incidental deaths because we don't see the realtor die. We want to, but we don't. But we do see the quite famed and that we talked about in the previous episode about Juon, this this guard who has never stepped foot in the house. I was genuinely shocked when that scene played out almost identically or not even almost identically as it did in the original film, because it so fucks with my understanding of what this curse is we talked about it in the previous episodes so well, i don't have to get into it too heavily but what i will say is i think that it's fascinating that you could tell if the idea of shimizu coming in to redo this film because there was errors in in his estimation i don't think in anyone else's estimation but in his estimation he feels that there was problems with the story very clearly he thinks that that sequence works yes absolutely because it it is not altered in any way shape or form yeah he's basically like for the a large portion has omitted the uh, schoolgirl sequences entirely because maybe it was maybe it was fan service maybe this is him admitting to us <laughs> our our supposition that this was that that was plain old fan service and uh, a reflection of where most ghost stories are told where they don't have that reality so much in the United States where this film was destined mm -hmm. for schoolgirls don't sit around telling ghost stories in school as much it's not a tradition at all so maybe that's part of it and like. In, in his remaking, like any great work of art, it is never finished, only abandoned. It's just wonderful that he gets a chance to go back and remake it. Not in a Michael Haneke style either, where they're just simply remaking their own movie. He's like having a chance to correct things, like you said, that he thought were errors. This scene, I'm glad that it basically survives unscathed it's almost shot for shot in a lot of ways and i love it mm -hmm. absolutely love it they don't have a screen that they show the brother is at the door which would have been mm -hmm. interesting like we do get to see him through the peephole and he looks mm -hmm. kind of out of sorts but not like raging we didn't get that interaction mm -hmm. between them that's one thing that i 
I do wish was included. It would have given us a little better idea of how long they've been in the house, how this deterioration had gone on, that it wasn't just 48 hours. Like you say, like they went, they walked in and everything was fine. And 48 hours later, two of them are, are, well, one of them is dead at least. And one of them has completely lost her faculties and has soiled the area and the house is a shambles. Like we would have had that kind of lull in between where we see that things are weird. The house is getting messy. The sister comes in to see a distraught and half possessed brother. You know, it would have been very interesting to see that, but alas. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that schoolgirl sequence being a fan service thing like maybe shimizu was looking at the film he's like there's too many goddamn adults here we need something for the kids to watch like young people to to relate to on screen so let's just do a sequence uh in in which we have some teenagers doing some stuff so to keep their interest it's um it's it's hard to really say i was looking up some ages of people while like you know sarah michelle geller was uh, almost in her 30s wow. when this movie came out. The, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer had happened. She had done a lot more horror than I really remembered because she was in Scream 2. She was in really heavily in I Know What You Did Last Summer way more than I fucking remembered. I actually recently went back and watched that film. And I thought that she was only in like a like a few scenes and then she gets killed nah man she's in that whole fucking movie all the way up until the end and then you know spoilers she gets killed uh she did the return another spooky uh ghost movie that not a lot of fucking people talk about uh but it's the same kind of thing and then she did this uh and and probably some more horror stuff that i'm that i'm not really remembering right now but I definitely know that my my uh, girlfriend at the time really wanted to go see this movie because they were a fan of Sarah Michelle Gellar. And, you know, she, she was uh, that it girl that could get people into the theaters. Um, when it comes to the later half of this movie, that's when there's some pretty stark differences because of a couple of reasons. One, as we'd mentioned the schoolgirl stuff is not in it. Two, Sarah Michelle Geller doesn't have a sister in this film that we know of. She's got a boyfriend. Uh, thirdly, we are also we also have Ted Ramey, who has a much larger role than the original administrator. And this is where they incorporate another aspect of the short films, the jaw-ripping scene, which I really liked. And this is if anyone were to ask me what the standout sequence, first of all, pretty crazy for PG-13. I don't know how you think about that, but we literally see a girl. There's got to be a technical term for your lower jaw being ripped off. <laughs> demandable yeah, or something like that. A lower mandible excision. And we see a tongue flopping around. Ted Ramey gets to do his most Ted ramey scream. I love, no matter what role he's doing, the second you have to get him to scream in terror, you're like, oh, there he is. There's <laughs> there's Ted Ramey and everything. <laughs> uh, I, I, I kid because I love. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and we don't see him folded up like a suitcase in a drawer. Uh, you know, eventually uh, we just assume that he dies and, and shit like that, but... Well, we don't assume she, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar gets told off camera. There's also 
police action lids. Don't you worry. Don't you fret. The fuzz is in on this. They're looking for suspects, but there's way less cops. In fact, there's only really one detective. He, there's He's got some other detectives around him that have maybe like one or two lines, but there's one lead guy that knows everything, uh, including the story about what had happened. And then not only is that aspect different, but Sarah Michelle Gell is going to do some sleuthing. But don't worry, she's not going to get into the microfiche. She's just going to Google it or Yahoo it, I suppose. She's going to Yahoo it because that would be popular and that wouldn't even be what would be used so much in, in Japan. Maybe there's Yahoo.jp. But yeah, I, I in the version that we were watching last night, there was no subtitles for the interactions between the detective and his lackey. So I had no idea what the detective was saying to other cops. And luckily there was only, like you said, one cop really and his lackey. Mm -hmm. And he only has a few hallway conversations that you can guess what they're saying because we've seen enough cop shows and we have seen this film before and other films. We know what they're talking about. But I, I was so disappointed because even if you turn on the subtitles, it only has subtitles for the English it doesn't have any subtitles for any of the Japanese. Luckily, through watching enough anime in my time, we know the the functional Japanese that the uh, mother or the wife or the Sarah Michelle Geller is speaking when they're encountering public and trying to get directions and things like that. We can sort of understand that. But the conversation between the cop and the detective, I couldn't understand. So unfortunately, I don't know what they were saying. So what they're saying, uh, I, I was watching my old school DVD, which has this weird thing. I, it won't pick up on camera, and this is a, an audio medium, so I'm sorry, listeners, but <laughs> there's this weird thing where the label is all like rippled. It looks like the DVD got wet or something. It's, it's really strange. It kind of makes it a little bit more creepy, actually, in my estimation. But in this, they do have translation for the Japanese. In English, if you, I put the subtitles on. In English, the sub, uh, it, if uh, everything's yellow, the classic big blocky yellow old DVD stuff. And then when they're speaking Japanese, it goes white. So what the police detectives are really saying, what, what the lead detective is saying is literally what he was discussing with Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, i.e., what happened? How did you know these people? Like, when's the last time you spoke to any of these kind of people? And then the secondary detective, essentially what his job is, is to say, this person's missing. We can't get a hold of this person. There's no evidence that this, there's like, it's basically just like telling the cop what we, the audience already knows. Everybody that goes into this house is dead. And anyone that is connected with either it be Susan, Susan hasn't, uh, shown up for work we went to her apartment the door was the one thing that he mentioned that might be a little interesting is they had no the detective had noted that the chain lock on the inside of her apartment was drawn which oh. indicated that somebody she get she got home she locked her door with the chain lock but is just gone so that's the that's sort of like the eerie so it was locked from the inside with a chain lock, yeah. so someone had to do it, but she's not there. So what happened? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you said, the th things that we do know and, and things that did happen in the original that were just backed up, which is, again, like from the tone of their voices and what they're saying and the eye movement between them, <laughs> you can sort of discern what they're talking mm -hmm. about. Well, they say a good percentage of communication is nonverbal. But mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Michelle Geller is going to do some sleuthing because... Lids, 
<laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but like a, a suicide in Japan is right on the front page of the variety, along with a, 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 a triple homicide that happened. And then days later, the same two, two stories of two different incidences on two different days run on the front page right underneath each other. And Sarah Michelle Gellar is like, wait a second, Peter, Peter committed suicide. Maybe this has something to do with it. And she finds Peter's wife, who's still living in Japan. What is the motivation of Peter's wife? Was she, did, she, did we catch her just before she went and did a stint as a streetwalker? Uh, is this what she's doing to make ends meet now? Because she looks awkward. What do you say about this scene, man? I'm going to, I'm just going to go out and say it. This is easily the worst scene in the entire film. And here's why I don't like it. One, Sarah Michelle Gellar shows up to this woman's house completely unannounced and says, I want to talk to you about Peter. Yeah. We don't see that conversation. We just have Peter's wife giving the the box of what is probably the only pictures of this one day that they went to the zoo that they have of each other where because not only is it just a shoebox just full of pictures of the same day but it's also one of those pictures is framed and on the bookshelf so i was like are these like did you guys go out to the zoo one day and it was such a crazy day that like these are the only pictures that you have but i think it's a different i think it's different days because they're wearing different clothes she's not oh, usually okay. but that's sort of typical of a japanese housewife in a way or, or a student too she's wearing like her clothes okay i'll i'll, I'll peel back off that then it, it is awkward and i don't know luckily luckily Sarah Michelle Gellar's character did introduce the scene by saying this is awkward. Really? She's like, here's this shoebox of stuff. Bye. Like, she just walks off of the scene and leaves Sarah Michelle Gellar by herself to then sleuth together that the same woman is in the background of all of these photos that she's taken. There's no more dialogue. It would have been way more fun if Sarah Michelle Gellar went to go see, got buzzed in by somebody else, didn't have a conversation, went to the door, and the wife happened to be out, and she just sort of like snuck in and snooped yeah. around and saw the photos because the photos themselves, like that's the redeeming point of this entire scene, is seeing mm -hmm. the face of Kayako in the background in all of these photos. And it's nicely mirrored later on when we see a lot more versions of her face in photos. But I, I really do like that portion of the scene but it is awkward as shit not only are we dealing with the, the wife of somebody who only not that long ago had lost her husband to suicide for w unknown reasons from as far as she knows because she's obviously never noticed Kayako creeping about and legging about in every single photo of them that exists it seems that is in the shoebox for whatever reason she like is dressed very awkwardly with mm -hmm. like weird cakey makeup and weird cakey two red lipstick and a party dress and her hair yeah. is teased where we see her earlier in the film at the very beginning she looks like a fairly well put together pastel colored demure calm person yeah she looks like she is about to like go out for a night on the town at like 11 o'clock in the afternoon like i don't i i do not get the vibe of this whatsoever. And and again, if you needed to, there's just a lot of wild leaps of faith here that, it, and it doesn't work for me. It like 
first of all, I can't stress this enough. Sarah Michelle Geller is not a detective. She's not a journalist. <laughs> she's not like anything. Why yeah. she thinks that she needs to be the one to, to... So she makes this humongous logic leap that two unrelated stories on the same page of the newspaper are co connect these people. Then she makes this this wild fucking leap that she's like squinting at a paper and some of those photos are pretty blurry and she's like, no, that's definitely the same woman in all the backgrounds. But she also makes this entire leap about the fact that something supernatural is going on in the house. Um, I know that she has seen some things for herself, but just the, like, and I just wish that there was a little bit more of a, th like, the Rachel character in The Ring is a journalist. So yeah. it makes sense that her brain is wired to think that way. She knows how to follow clues, to follow a story, to get where she needs to go. Sarah Michelle Gellar is a person who barely, like, like barely speaks any Japanese, wandering around here aimlessly, and and again, she's just doing this all on her own. I I, I don't know. I, I just find it not as well done. Like if you, I understand that in a ghost story you need to have this sleuthing aspect to figure out what is actually happening, but I just find it so hard to buy into the fact that she's able to do that. I don't know. Maybe I'm being overly critical, but no, no, I totally agree with that. And if they would have made some changes to her character, and I think that it like to go back and rewrite time, make her be a. Uh, English as a second language teacher that's there alone doesn't need to have a, a boyfriend or even her sister really and is um, investigating perhaps because she thinks that Toshio could have been you know was maybe the same age as a student of hers or something and she's got this sort of vested interest as a sort of um, proto caregiver of children perhaps that would have helped smooth all that over but now instead we have Doug <laughs> and this 80s retro night kind of wife that has been left over from the suicide of Peter. The detective, meanwhile, just is getting exposed to a lot of supernatural stuff. Now, it's easy to forget that he also has been in the house. Sarah Michelle Geller will remind us of that fact, uh, of of course. But, you know, he views the camera tape, uh, by the way, by himself, whereas, whereas opposed to multiple detectives viewing this stuff at different times, it seems like he really is on like a one man mission he's also aware of the murder that happened he also discusses the fact that three friends of his on the force were investigating this murder three years previously two of them were killed under mysterious circumstances the third one went missing so this has all happened before it's all happening again i love that at the end of the day his conclusion is just gas gas cans and a lot of them gas cans burn the fucker down that is the same point that we got to with the original film as well with a little more of a reason though we we saw that this man had been tortured and he continued to be afterward and that was a whole thread to do with his daughter which is cut from this film so we don't really have that same sort of emotional reaction to this burning the house down it's sort of like this is creating too much paperwork for me um, I'm tired of speaking English to this gajin. I will burn this house down and that will fix it. That's sort of the feeling I get more so than this house is is a, a curse and it's killing people and 
I'm going mad and I need to cleanse myself in the world of this scourge. And I don't know if that's really his motivation. The first time that I saw this film, I remember getting really frustrated at the house burning scene or the attempt, because here is a man entering with two gas cans. He is here to destroy the house. And you understand almost from the jump that he, this is just like in the original Zhuan, this detective very much believes and understands that there is something supernatural going on in this house, something that is not right. And he goes there to burn it down. But he will stop in the middle of his doings because he hears childlike laughter and sounds coming from another room. And he then is fooled 100% by Toshio lying face down into the water. Obviously, what's happened here is his senses have been lost to him because he's now just reacting as uh, as an adult. There's a child in danger and all of what you understand is gone out the window because of what you're seeing. I get that. But I remember being so frustrated because I know I'm watching a horror movie and I'm just like, burn the house down, please, for the love of God. Just even if you're just kicking that down kick the gas cans over drop your fucking match get the hell out of the house i mean you're screwed anyway but maybe not if you burn it down who knows yeah that's what you went there to do and you have an idea that it's going to do anything it can to stop you this is what it's doing we know you know this the most disorienting thing that i love this shot is we see the 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 arm and hand of a man grab the detective and hold him under the water and then we see the from the perspective of underneath the water, we're looking up and we're seeing this man rippled by the distorted water. Uh, he doesn't, we know it's not obviously Toshio. We know it's obviously not Kayako, but we don't know who this man is. Well, I mean, if you're paying attention to the, the news strip, then you could maybe recognize him, but it's hard. And he also doesn't look dead. He's not like Kayako who is chalk white uh toshio who's who changes from chalk white to a flesh-colored boy so i remember when i was initially watching this movie in the theaters i do remember being very confused i was like who's this guy what's this all about yeah i guess that would be that would be confusing i don't remember my initial reaction to that at all i really don't i do remember being vaguely confused watching this the first time uh, I think that's why I watched it several times in a row to sort of piece together the story. It's like watching Memento mm -hmm. for the first time. You kind of want to at least watch it one more time to really, really get it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, it is it is very confusing. And you would think at this point, you're kind of shaken between is this really happening or not? You're faced with the reality that the mother that had lived there had dementia and she was somewhat catatonic. She had uh, lethargy. So there's one thing in the reality that is having the characters behave a certain way. And there are supernatural reasons for them behaving in those exact same ways as well. So now is this a living man who's decided to perpetuate the haunting by killing people that go in there? That's a valid explanation for That's him. That's the Scooby-Doo ending. Yeah, up until this point, it definitely is. You know what I appreciate the most about this? film now as I'm watching it or as I was watching it after going so hard against the ring remake for 
spelling things out to us the way that it did. I did enjoy the fact that they, at the very least, there was some more explanations and more dealing a lot with a stranger in a strange land narrative because you would do that because you have a bunch of American people who are now living in Japan. So it's natural to want to show the culture shock and shit like that. But for the most part, they have a very steady hand with not over explaining things in a way that it felt as though in the ring, they just kept looking at us every five minutes and being like, you got that <laughs> idiot. And then they, and then they turn back to the, and they go back to the scene. This seemed a little bit more subtle. I think that the sequence in which Sarah Michelle Geller gets to the house, um, again, this idea that Doug can't find her. Remember Doug guys, he's, he's here. Doug can't find her. She comes home and she leaves he leaves a message on her answering machine that says, I can't find you. Did you go to that house? I'm going to go to the house. Like, so now Doug's in danger and we have Sarah Michelle Geller running to the house now together. And this is where in the original film we had, okay, Kayako's memories have been uh, implanted into you. You are now Kayako. Whereas this sequence seems to just be, you're back in time. Because Bill Pullman's character, we're going to see in a flashback, gets a letter, a mysterious letter. And one of his fellow professors sort of teases him a little bit. And he says, I don't even know who this is. Like, I don't remember this person. But he then, instead of ignoring the letter, although you could probably presume maybe there's been a lot of letters because they've talked as if there was. Yeah, he shows like a pile of them in his locker. So he goes to the address, which first I'd be like, dude, that's a bad idea. Like even, even if like she is alive, this is going to be like hand that rocks the cradle type thing. Like you ain't getting out of there. Don't go to this person's house. And so what, what happens is, is they combine... Sarah Michelle, like if Sarah Michelle Geller had a sister, they've combined the scene with her sister going to the house and discovering Toshio. Then they combine that with Sarah Michelle Geller's flashback because Bill Pullman, obviously, by the time this story is happening, has been dead for three years. It was, it's laid out in a way that I found both jarring, a little disorienting. It reminded me of sections of the schoolgirl part but then also was its own thing. What did you think about this whole flashback sequence that bled into another flashback? It's sort of like, I, I guess my like last reaction is this is the house grandstanding. This is the house saying, look what I can do. Look what I've done. Look what I did to these people. Because that's the only explanation because it's not told from Kayako's point of view. There's things in there that Kayako would have never been privy to. And that is where what we want to think is this is Kayako's spirit embodying Karen. And mm -hmm. it's it's not because there's things in there that Kayako could have never seen. And it's not just the the story of Bill Pullman necessarily because it goes beyond that. And it is things that the house itself could have never seen because it's outside of the house. So it's not necessarily the house. I think if anything, if the house is all seeing, all knowing that the only thing I can come to settle on is that it is 
kind of grandstanding in a way. Why it decided and why whatever powers it be manifested that flashback moment at that time is only explained to me in that it is a replacement for the detective's flashback of his daughter in the original. That's the only reason it seems to exist here. Or, of course, Expo Dump. Particularly that door sequence where you sh- where you have Bill Pullman in the the Toshio's bedroom door, and it like it constantly looks like he is aware of Sarah Michelle Geller's presence, and they remind you uh, two different times in that flashback that no, so that means that in real life Bill Pullman was literally just like leering creepily at a wall that Sarah Michelle Geller in the future just happens to be standing in front of while he like reaches out to things menacingly and shit. I liked this sequence quite a bit, and this gives way to... I I love... Sorry, I just want to take a second. I love that idea that you just postulated, that it's the house itself that's like, look at this. Pretty fucking crazy, eh? Look what I did. It's the only real explanation. I love this scene. Don't get me wrong. I love it artistically. Literally, though, I could see people wanting to tear it apart. And if you look hard enough on the internet, I'm sure you will find everything wrong with the grudge. And this scene will be highlighted as the scene that makes no sense at all. But if I want to look for what supernatural force would show us or Karen this, and it's the grudge. They do at the top of this film again reiterate uh, almost verbatim what the initial premise of the film is the idea that this evil collects in this one place so the idea that it's the house itself isn't necessarily true but the 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 space in which the house occupies that's the problem so i would even presume even if you were to burn down this house build a new house or leave it a vacant parking lot it'd be a haunted parking lot like it would be a parking lot that you would die if you went into something like that uh, this is where we get our uh, obsessive Kayako sequence. I think that I genuinely don't... I'm, I'm of two minds of this. I think it adds to the darkness of the story. I think it adds an interesting aspect to Kayako's character. The idea that she is an obsessive. The, the idea that the the while the relationship didn't exist Kayako was a very sick woman who was obsessed with a man and she stalked him and she had a a deranged journal and she had all these photos and it it was almost like a serial killer's shrine or lair or something like that and it was her secret room and her husband discovered it and in a maddening jealous rage killed her and so it's just this sad situation where everyone's terrible and everyone is sick in the head and it resulted in murder and the drowning of cats and like her husband is like fucking twitching around i didn't quite i was like what is this about but i I suppose he's just so overcome with his anger and his emotions and shit like that and it leads to kayako getting murdered it leads to peter bill pullman's character discovering Kayako's body. It shows uh, in a much shorter sequence, blink and you'll miss it sequence, Kayako crawling for her life away from her murderous husband. Uh, I think that uh, that kind of lessens the impact of why Kayako crawls down the stairs because she was running, she was trying to get away 
from her husband. I think I think it's sad that that is more muted and not as obvious because uh, I just don't want people to miss that aspect because it's one of my favorites. Yeah. It, this change, and Shimizu said, like, I wanted to fix some things. And maybe this was just in his mind, it wasn't an affair, but Kayako was in love with another man. Um, how do you feel it? Cha- does that change anything for you, or is it just that's it doesn't it's a detail? It's not really relevant. It does make it a little more sad. It's a lot more dark. That's really about all that it changes. Um, I don't feel quite as bad for Kayako, but considering what she becomes, it, it's sort of like she's removed entirely from the situation and the haunting as it were or the grudge as it is because it seems like that existed somehow in in a certain aspect before her and it's mostly the husband's fault it's his rage that has been manifested and she is just a pawn in all of this Uh, i still have that feeling that still persists throughout Mm -hmm. either film it just makes it a little more dark and a little more sad (laughs) because she is just like you said a sick woman she has a sick obsessive problem which could have been handled a lot better by everyone involved Mm -hmm. but instead it's involved in the most toxic and dangerous violent manner known to man the other one the at the end of the day with juan you do just feel bad because like i'd put the analogy of walking past the houses of people more well off than you and thinking wouldn't that be nice it's not a sick or toxic feeling which I don't think I got from Kayako in the original film it was just sort of a forlorn mm-hmm. feeling I I think what I like the most is in Juan I, I like things just being a little bit more ambiguous mm-hmm. but the motivation was clear the husband killed his wife because of this affair, real or imagined. In this, it's like imagined. Imagined to a certain extent, because you could argue that uh, emotional uh, adultery exists. Yes. 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 What I was, yeah, what I was going to say was like imagined, but like that uh, still a a lack of uh, faithfulness and um, yeah, a, a sick, sad situation that erupted into this hideous evil spot uh you know nestled in the quiet suburbs of tokyo so doug dies does anyone care i fucking man i i honestly just was so baffled by this fucking character and i like there's there's this aspect where it's the canary in the coal mine where in horror you need to see how somebody is going to die. They're very ambiguous with how people are actually dying in this film. They People either vanish or they like look like they're having sleep paralysis and then they just die. In this, you need to have Kayako crawling over him. And essentially what it looks like to me is like almost like siphoning the life right out of this dork right and i love the the, first, the last time the second last time that we see this guy his penultimate scene is him just like standing around in the the, the house just with this bemused look on his face what the fuck are you doing here douglas and the next time we see him it looks like he got his ass kicked and he's like oh and then he just drops dead and then once he's dead we just see and the house is going up in flames and kayako makes it towards sarah michelle geller 
I, I just, I get it. We just wanted to see Doug die so it, so Sarah Michelle Gellar could see what's going to happen to her in theory. Uh, just like in the ring, like, you know, those, those, uh, that teenager needs to die at the beginning of the ring. So you know what's going to happen to somebody at the end of seven days. Same with It Follows. And this sort of reminded me of the beginning of It Follows as well. Not only mm. because it's just like a, a very quick dead body scene all of a sudden to introduce some extra gore, <laughs> some extra violence into a film that's uh, not necessarily lacking on those things, but just to start you out on the right track. Uh, you could argue though, Karen knows exactly what awaits her because she has been rendered comatose and catatonic in fear from Kayako. The only person who doesn't know what the fuck is going on is Doug. Like that, that person literally, that person knows that his girlfriend went to work one day and the person in her care died and everyone in that house went missing. And so she was talking to some police detectives. She showed up and she said at his work and said, something's wrong with the house. She disappears again. And then he's like, <laughs> And then he's like, maybe she was at that house she was talking about. And the next thing you know, like, <laughs> Kaiko's like crawling all over him and shit. I was like, he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. I would love to see you make this movie grudge the Doug and do it from Doug's point of view. Just like that. Just there's your script. You just described it to us. That is an excellent pitch. I would love that film. It's going to be a bunch of sequences of Doug sitting there, like, drinking a coffee, reading a book, watching some, like, Japanese game shows, studying, sleeping. The, and then at the very end, he's just going to get killed by a ghost. And the movie's going to be six and a half fucking hours long. Like, <laughs> That would be excellent. That'd be excellent. It's just another argument as to why Doug doesn't need to exist in this. Yeah, I, I really am not a fan of of Doug, and I don't hate him. I just like he may, like he may as well be a lamp. I get it. He may as well just be a fucking sexy lamp. Uh, he's not even that sexy. I'm just saying. But the um, this all ends up with the house burning, and we don't know to the extent in which it was burned. But but dear Lydia, we know that Sarah Michelle Gellar got out of there somehow and she is gonna live to tell the tale um or is she question mark or is she the new kayako question mark have you seen the grudge 2 remake i don't remember if i have or not they all sort of blur into one after the original juan and the grudge and of course the series the newer series uh, is completely different as well. I, I, that is standalone, and I love it very much. Uh, it's so dark and so brutal. But uh, yeah, I don't so remember wild. seeing any of the other spinoffs, remakes at all. I could have. Uh, Shimizu came back along with all of the actors that played Kayako and, and, and everybody uh, whose names escape me right now. But... Um, they all came back to do the the next one, hmm. and uh, that takes place in like the apartment complex. And uh, they try to outdo the bed scene with a hoodie scene. Someone gets pulled into their own hoodie. Oh, Very interesting. You know, that does ring yeah. a bell. The third one came out. It was direct to video. I I have all these on DVD, but that one came out direct to video. Uh, it didn't have any of the original people involved. Uh, I, I like it 
significantly less, although it's got some effective scenes in it. And like you were saying, uh, that the latest remake, uh, what I hate about it is that they fooled me about Kayako <laughs> being in it when we get an arm and no more Kayako. But I love it because of what you said, because holy fuck, is that a violent movie? And it's great because it is dark and it is brutal and uh, very well made. I just hate it as a grudge sequel, but I also love it, if that makes sense. Could have had a different title entirely, really, honestly. Uh, But great movie. I I don't understand entirely how it's a grudge film, but okay. And it's funny because it fucks with the timeline even further because now the grudge one, two, and three remakes are happening all within a short amount of time. And then the the, the fourth one is in that continuity and taking place simultaneously as the other three movies. So uh, quite a rich tapestry that they have drawn. Uh, I was happy to see this film again for the show. This is probably, I kid you not, the third time I've ever watched it. Because I saw it in theaters, too scared to ever watch it again. Then I watched it again, didn't mind it. And now I watched it for a third time for the show. Um, I'm, I feel like uh, I'm going to remember it a lot better now. Because I think one of the things for me is I'd seen Juan so many times that I didn't realize that I was just completely forgetting scenes that were in the remake. Uh, but it's good to it's good to get a refresher, for sure. Absolutely. I'm glad to have rewatched it because it has been so, so, so long for me. And I really enjoyed it. And actually, some of the more modern horror films that I've watched lately do remind me a lot of this. And I have a lot of the same feelings. So they definitely did a lot of things right. If someone wants to go out and say that modern horror is where it's at, they need to go back and rewatch the originals of these films and their remakes because now they're old classic films, Wes. This film is going to be 20 fucking years old next year. And that is mind-bending to me, (laughs) but that is the steady march of time, a curse in and of itself. I can't overemphasize to audiences listening to this the significance of this film because it was enough that the ring did well and the ring did gangbusters and then the ring remake came out and it did even better and and it made tons and tons and tons of money hollywood will take a chance once but they don't like it if it's not a sure thing so they said what else you got and the next big thing to hit is the grudge and even though critically it was met with a bit more mixed results Critics don't pay the bills, ticket sales do. And this movie made a buttload of money. And that was the official floodgates of everything getting made. Because all of a sudden, if you had a ghost story out of Japan, if you remade it for American audiences, it meant big business. And for a period of like five, six years, you get a ton of these movies and more stuff getting imported. So if you were a fan of foreign horror films, it was a golden era to be alive. And one thing that was funny is when you're living through that era, you don't really notice it. It's only now, 20 years later, we look back and we can see the historical precedent on film 
that these two films had, which is why I'm glad for the last four episodes we were able to finally dissect these movies because, again, so important to the horror genre to this day, as you were saying. So do we want to stay in this mode and cover a few of the gems of that rebirth and that reinvigoration, reinvigoration, that rediscovery of Asian horror cinema that we underwent in the early 2000s into the maybe 2010s? Or do we want to cover some new stuff? Or do you want to go on a total other tangent and get out of like the category five films, perhaps, and into, I don't know what, where do you want to go next? What, what I'm asking is, so Wes, what do we have coming up next? Coming up next, Lids, after we, we, you'll probably cut out the five minutes that we talked about, like five different movies, but we are going to do, and I'm going in cold on a Lids recommendation. The last time we did a Lids recommendation where I went in cold, I like, now like bought a blu-ray and i'm like very obsessed with uh haunt but we're going to be doing malignant i've heard nothing but good things that's not true i've heard super mixed things (laughs) i feel like this is going to be a really cool conversation and for our modern horror lovers don't worry uh, lids can get me out of the dusty old 80s every now and again um and we're going to do Malignant. That's the plan. With something that feels so at home in eras that you love, I'm very excited to have the conversation. And you know what? Coming out of this film, it's not too much of a leap. You'll see what I mean when we watch Malignant. And then after that, we'll be rolling into some werewolf films and back into Asian horror classics. That sounds like a recipe for the anti-grudge. It's like, what's what's? I, I, I suppose it's just a house where everything's okay. <laughs> Like the house of dead air. The house where everything is okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like like over top of the house of dead air. It's just like a sign that says like, doing doing fine. <laughs> just dandy. I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. If you like this show, you can find more episodes and other content on splatterpictures.net, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. The show is edited by Lydia Peaver and hosted by Lydia Peaver and me, Wes Knipe. We'll see you next time.